Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton Introduction, The Plan of This Book, Part 2 In order to strike, in the only sane or possible sense, the note of impartiality, it is necessary to touch the nerve of novelty. I mean that in one sense we see things fairly when we see them first. That, I may remark, in passing, is why children generally have very little difficulty about the dogmas of the Church. But the Church, being a highly practical thing for working and fighting, is necessarily a thing for men, and not merely for children. There must be in it, for working purposes, a great deal of tradition, of familiarity, and even of routine. So long as its fundamentals are sincerely felt, this may even be the saner condition. But when its fundamentals are doubted, as at present, we must try to recover the candor and wonder of the child, the unspoilt realism and objectivity of innocence. Or if we cannot do that, we must try at least to shake off the cloud of mere custom and see the thing as new, if only by seeing it as unnatural. Things that may well be familiar, so long as familiarity breeds affection, had much better become unfamiliar when familiarity breeds contempt. For in connection with things so great as are here considered, whatever our view of them, contempt must be a mistake. Indeed, contempt must be an illusion. We must invoke the most wild and soaring sort of imagination, the imagination that can see what is there. The only way to suggest the point is by an example of something, indeed of almost anything, that has been considered beautiful or wonderful. George Wyndham once told me that he had seen one of the first aeroplanes rise for the first time, and it was very wonderful. But not so wonderful as a horse allowing a man to ride on him. Somebody else has said that a fine man on a fine horse is the noblest bodily object in the world. Now, so long as people feel this in the right way, all is well. The first and best way of appreciating it is to come of people with a tradition of treating animals properly, of men in the right relation to horses. A boy who remembers his father who rode a horse, who rode it well and treated it well, will know that the relation can be satisfactory and will be satisfied. He will be all the more indignant at the ill-treatment of horses because he knows how they ought to be treated. But he will see nothing but what is normal in a man riding on a horse. He will not listen to the great modern philosopher who explains to him that the horse ought to be riding on the man. He will not pursue the pessimist fancy of Swift and say that men must be despised as monkeys and horses worshipped as gods. And horse and man together, making an image that is to him human and civilized, it will be easy, as it were, to lift horse and man together into something heroic or symbolical, like a vision of St. George in the clouds. The fable of the winged horse will not be wholly unnatural to him, and he will know why Ariosto set many a Christian hero in such an airy saddle, and made him the rider of the sky. For the horse has really been lifted up along with the man in the wildest fashion in the very word we use when we speak of chivalry. The very name of the horse has been given to the highest mood and moment of the man, so that we might almost say that the handsomest compliment to a man 
is to call him a horse. But if a man has got into a mood in which he is not able to feel this sort of wonder, then his cure must begin right at the other end. We must now suppose that he has drifted into a dull mood, in which somebody sitting on a horse means no more than somebody sitting on a chair. The wonder of which Wyndham spoke, the beauty that made the thing seem an equestrian statue, the meaning of the more chivalric horseman, may have become to him merely a convention and a bore. Perhaps they have been merely a fashion. Perhaps they have gone out of fashion. Perhaps they have been talked about too much, or talked about in the wrong way. Perhaps it was then difficult to care for horses without the horrible risk of being horsey. Anyhow, he has got into a condition when he cares no more for a horse than for a towel horse. His grandfather's charge at Balaclava seems to him as dull and dusty as the album containing such family portraits. Such a person has not really become enlightened about the album. On the contrary, he has only become blind with the dust. But when he has reached that degree of blindness, he will not be able to look at a horse or a horseman at all until he has seen the whole thing as a thing entirely unfamiliar and almost unearthly. Out of some dark forest, under some ancient dawn, there must come towards us, with lumbering yet dancing motions, one of the very queerest of the prehistoric creatures. We must see for the first time the strangely small head set on a neck not only longer but thicker than itself, as the face of a gargoyle is thrust out upon a gutter spout, the one disproportionate crest of hair running along the ridge of that heavy neck like a beard in the wrong place, the feet, each like a solid club of horn, alone amid the feet of so many cattle so that the true fear is to be found in showing not the cloven, but the uncloven hoof. Nor is it mere verbal fancy to see him thus as a unique monster. For in a sense, a monster means what is unique, and he is really unique. But the point is that when we thus see him, as the first man saw him, we begin once more to have some imaginative sense of what it meant when the first man rode him. In such a dream, he may seem ugly, but he does not seem unimpressive. And certainly, that two-legged dwarf who could get on top of him will not seem unimpressive. By a longer and more erratic road, we shall come back to the same marvel of the man and the horse. And the marvel will be, if possible, even more marvelous. We shall have again a glimpse of St. George the more glorious, because St. George is not riding on the horse, but rather riding on the dragon. In this example, which I have taken merely because it is an example, it will be noted that I do not say that the nightmare seen by the first man of the forest is either more true or more wonderful than the normal mare of the stable seen by the civilized person who can appreciate what is normal. Of the two extremes, I think, on the whole, that the traditional grasp of truth is the better. But I say that the truth is found at one or other of these two extremes, and is lost in the intermediate condition of mere fatigue and forgetfulness of tradition. In other words, I say it is better to see a horse as a monster than to see it only as a slow substitute for a motor car. If we have got into that state of mind about a horse as something stale, it is far better to be frightened of a horse because it is a good deal too fresh. Now, as it is with the monster that is called a horse, 
so it is with the monster that is called a man. Of course, the best condition of all, in my opinion, is always to have regarded man as he is regarded in my philosophy. He who holds the Christian and Catholic view of human nature will feel certain that it is a universal, and therefore a sane view, and will be satisfied. But if he has lost the sane vision, he can only get it back by something very like a mad vision. That is, by seeing man as a strange animal and realizing how strange an animal he is. But just as seeing the horse as a prehistoric prodigy ultimately led back to, and not away from, an admiration for the mastery of man, so the really detached consideration of the curious career of man will lead back to, and not away from, the ancient faith in the dark designs of God. In other words, it is exactly when we do see how queer the quadruped is that we praise the man who mounts him, and exactly when we do see how queer the biped is that we praise the providence that made him. In short, it is the purpose of this introduction to maintain this thesis, that it is exactly when we do regard man as an animal that we know he is not an animal. It is precisely when we do try to picture him as a sort of horse on its hind legs that we suddenly realize that he must be something as miraculous as the winged horse that towered up into the clouds of heaven. All roads lead to Rome. All ways lead round again to the central and civilized philosophy, including this road through Elfland and Topsy-Turvydom. But it may be that it is better never to have left the land of a reasonable tradition, where men ride lightly upon horses and are mighty hunters before the Lord. So also, in the specially Christian case, we have to react against the heavy bias of fatigue. It is almost impossible to make the facts vivid, because the facts are familiar. And for fallen men, it is often true that familiarity is fatigue. I am convinced that if we could tell the supernatural story of Christ word for word as of a Chinese hero, call him the Son of Heaven instead of the Son of God, and trace his rayed nimbus in the gold thread of Chinese embroideries or the gold lacquer of Chinese pottery instead of in the gold leaf of our own old Catholic paintings, there would be a unanimous testimony to the spiritual purity of the story. We should hear nothing then of the injustice of substitution or the illogicality of atonement, or the superstitious exaggeration of the burden of sin, or the impossible insolence of an invasion of the laws of nature. We should admire the chivalry of the Chinese conception of a god who fell from the sky to fight the dragons and save the wicked from being devoured by their own fault and folly. We should admire the subtlety of the Chinese view of life which perceives that all human imperfection is, in very truth, a crying imperfection. We should admire the Chinese esoteric and superior wisdom, which said there are higher cosmic laws than the laws we know. We believe every common Indian conjurer who chooses to come to us and talk in the same style. If Christianity were only a new Oriental fashion, it would never be reproached with being an old and Oriental faith. I do not propose in this book to follow the alleged example of St. Francis Xavier 
with the opposite imaginative intention, and turn the twelve apostles into mandarins, not so much to make them look like natives, as to make them look like foreigners. I do not propose to work what I believe would be a completely successful practical joke, that of telling the whole story of the gospel and the whole story of the church in a setting of pagodas and pigtails, and noting with malignant humor how much it was admired as a heathen story in the very quarters where it is condemned as a Christian story. But I do propose to strike wherever possible this note of what is new and strange. And, for that reason, the style even on so serious a subject may sometimes be deliberately grotesque and fanciful. I do desire to help the reader to see Christendom from the outside in the sense of seeing it as a whole, against the background of other historical things, just as I desire him to see humanity as a whole against the background of natural things. And I say that in both cases, when seen thus, they stand out from their background like supernatural things. They do not fade into the rest with the colors of Impressionism. They stand out from the rest with the colors of heraldry, as vivid as a red cross on a white shield, or a black lion on a ground of gold. So stands the red clay against the green field of nature, or the white Christ against the red clay of his race. But in order to see them clearly, we have to see them as a whole. We have to see how they developed, as well as how they began. For the most incredible part of the story is that things which began thus should have developed thus. Anyone who chooses to indulge in mere imagination can imagine that other things might have happened, or other entities evolved. Anyone thinking of what might have happened may conceive a sort of evolutionary equality. But anyone facing what did happen must face an exception and a prodigy. If there was ever a moment when man was only an animal, we can, if we choose, make a fancy picture of his career transferred to some other animal. An entertaining fantasia might be made in which elephants built in elephantine architecture, towers and turrets like tusks and trunks, cities beyond the scale of any colossus. A pleasant fable might be conceived in which a cow had developed a costume and put on four boots and two pairs of trousers. We could imagine a super-monkey, more marvelous than any superman, a quadruminous creature, carving and painting with his hands and cooking and carpentering with his feet. But if we are considering what did happen, we shall certainly decide that man has distanced everything with a distance like that of the astronomical spaces and a speed like that of the still thunderbolt of the light. And in the same fashion, while we can, if we choose, see the church amid a mob of Mithraic or Manichaean superstitions squabbling and killing each other at the end of the empire, while we can, if we choose, imagine the church killed in the struggle and some other chance cult taking its place, we shall be the more surprised, and possibly puzzled, if we meet it, two thousand years afterwards rushing through the ages as the winged thunderbolt of thought and everlasting enthusiasm, a thing without rival or resemblance, and still as new as it is old. Tis the gift to be simple, tis the gift to be free, tis the gift to come down where we ought to be, and when we find ourselves in the place just right, will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, 
to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>